0: Hello, I'm Aaron Lore, and this is the Endocrine News Podcast. We're in Chicago for Endo 2023, it's the biggest meeting on endocrinology research and clinical care in the world. And there's so much fascinating work being presented here. And we're going to share some of that work now. It's a study titled Protective Effects of Lactation on Maternal Metabolism. Joining me to talk about it is one of the study authors, Dr. Julie Hens. Dr. Hens is a research scientist at Yale University. Thanks for being here today, Dr. Hens. You're welcome. And we're glad to have you here. So what do we know about the relationship between lactation, and diabetes and metabolism?
1: Well, there is a lot of circumstantial evidence that shows that women who lactate have a reduced risk of metabolic and cardiovascular diseases when you compare to a woman who did not lactate. As an example, there's the cardio study that has been ongoing for a long time. They have shown that there are lots of benefits to having a lactation in women. And the women who lactate have decreased adiposity improved insulin sensitivity and insulin secretion but pregnancy causes insulin resistance in the third trimester and that's associated with the risk of type 2 diabetes in predisposed women when you lactate they have a reverse of these metabolic changes due to the pregnancy but the details of how this occur is not clear the mechanisms are not fully understood
0: so there's some things that we don't know but it sounds like there's plenty that we also do know What did you and your team hope to learn through the research you're presenting here at Endo, and why did this work interest you?
1: I had an aunt who had breast cancer, Hmm. so that was how I got into the mammary gland field. And I have been looking at different aspects of mammary gland biology since I've been in grad school. And what I hope is to understand better the mechanisms of how lactation is improving metabolism and reducing
0: risk of type two diabetes. Your study doesn't look just at lactation, but also history of lactation, or in the case of the mice in your study, repeated cycles of reproduction. Why might that be important?
2: Whether
1: there's an effect on duration or the number of lactation can minimize the risk of metabolic diseases, such as type 2 diabetes. There are some papers out there that suggest that. And the number of times of lactation may be important. A little bit but it's really the duration of your lactation in women that can affect your metabolic risk so the longer you lactate potentially the lower your risk for Mm -hmm. metabolic
0: syndrome and diseases all right well let's jump in please tell us about your study
1: so we used a mouse model and we had three groups of mice we had virgins we had mice that had lactated and mice that went through the pregnancy but did not lactate at the end of the study we did one cycle of lactation and two cycles depending on the group of mice. And at the end, we would measure their weights for the different organs. We did OGTT and euglycemic hyperinsulinemic clamps. We also looked at the pancreas and did insulin staining on the sections to look at the beta cells.
0: And would you mind sharing with us what you found?
1: Sure. So overall, there was a reduced adiposity when you lactated. There was increased insulin secreting cells in the pancreas and the liver was larger.
0: So this is one of my favorite questions I always love to ask. Did anything in those findings surprise you?
1: Yes, so when we did the OGTT, which is oral glucose tolerance test, we didn't see differences in the glucose between the three groups, which we thought we would. But we did see differences in the insulin, which was good. But in humans, there is a difference, that there's lower glucose levels. And then the other surprise was the liver. the liver grows a bit when you're lactating, but it's supposed to the same size it was before. At least that's what literature suggests. Hmm. But in our case, even though we waited over a month, the livers were still larger. And after a second round, they were still larger. So this seems to be a, a real effect.
0: How might your findings influence future research? What things might you look into?
1: We are going to look into the liver because the liver is very important for many different parts of metabol- metabolism. So we're going to look at functional changes that are happening in the liver, maybe by RNA-Seq. And we have some other ideas. We're also going to look in the pancreas because we did see an increase in insulin staining area from the islets. So we're going to examine insulin secretion in more detail. And then, of course, there's also muscle that we didn't look at, but we saw something (laughs) that's not in my poster. And uh, so we're potentially going to look into the muscle too.
0: Sounds wonderful. I wanted to say thank you for coming on the podcast and sharing your research with us. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. And that's all for this episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Did you know the Endocrine Society has a journal club podcast called the Endocrine Feedback Loop? I talk about it a bit, but I thought I would do a little more this time and let you hear it for yourself with a little sneak peek. Please keep in mind the Endocrine Feedback Loop podcast is available as a benefit to members of the Endocrine Society. So if you've been thinking about membership, here's another reason to consider it. This sneak peek is from an episode about women with type 1 diabetes, and it tackles the questions, how do glucoses change throughout the menstrual cycle of type 1 diabetes? And are all women affected equally? Enjoy.
3: Hello and welcome again to the Endocrine Feedback Loop. Today, we will look at a recent article from the JCENN that explores the changes in glucose control and type 1 diabetes that occur throughout the menstrual cycle. I host the Endocrine Feedback Loop, but spend most of my time as a general endocrinologist at Vanderbilt University, where I am the medical director for our endocrinology clinics and an associate director for our fellowship program. Returning today as our regular contributor and resident expert in diabetes technology is Steve Whitland. He works at the University of Rochester, where he is also a general endocrinologist and the clinical director, but has a special clinical and research focus on diabetes, diabetes technology, and innovations in diabetes treatment. Joining us in our virtual recording studio as our guest expert today is Mary Kortkowski from the University of Pittsburgh. Her clinical focus is on inpatient and outpatient diabetes, and she was the medical director at the UPMC Center for Diabetes and Endocrinology for many years. She is widely known for research in diabetes attested to by her numerous publications and committee work, including guideline committees. As should be obvious, I have just the right group of diabetologists joining me to discuss this article. For this month of the podcast, we tackle ambulatory glucose profile according to different phases of the menstrual cycle in women living with type 1 diabetes. The Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism published this article in October 2022. At this point, I'll turn things over to Steve. He will walk us through the points that the authors make in their introduction, as well as getting Mary's help in understanding some of the key background concepts here. Steve? Thanks, Chase and Mary, and good morning. So... The key point here is that there are some women, at least to
0: one's clinical impression, with type 1 diabetes who know changes in their glucose control during different phases of the menstrual cycle. I just wanted to turn it over to Mary for a moment and ask about her clinical experience with menstrual adjustments in glucose and possible mechanisms for changes in
2: glucose control through the menstrual cycle and why it's important. First of all, thank you for inviting me to be part of this. Menstrual cyclicity and reproductive function is an important component of the health of women with diabetes. There are many women, but not all women, who experience changes in their glucose controls over the course of their menstrual cycle. Some women experience a lot of difficulty with their glycemic control, usually during their two-week period preceding menzies. Other women notice no change, and some women notice even more hypoglycemia during this time. And it is often a topic that's not addressed by physicians at the time of uh, history-taking with women. It's an often overlooked portion of the medical history, but a very important part. So this
0: study does an evaluation of glucose excursions in patients with type 1 diabetes during all five phases of the menstrual cycle. Their hypothesis is that the time in range would decrease in the luteal phase. So
3: Mary?
2: This group, they used the first day of the menstrual cycle is day one. And so then anything after day one of the onset of menstruation would be considered the follicular phase. It's when a new Follicle, which is lying quiescent within the ovary, starts to develop under hormonal regulation of usually estrogen and then progesterone comes in later. So, the early follicular phase that they define in this study is day one through three of the menstrual cycle. So, some women may be even menstruating during that time. The mid follicular phase they define is day six through eight, which is usually menzies are over and the estrogen levels are gradually increasing. Progesterone levels tend to stay low. And then they define this periovulatory time time, the, the time when ovulation occurs, as day minus 16 to minus 14. So now they're sort of counting towards the onset of menstruation. Immediately preceding ovulation, there is usually an increase in both Follicle stimulating hormone and luteinizing hormone, which are the pituitary hormones that actually prompt ovulation. There's just a peak. And then they fall, your ovulation occurs. And then during the second phase of the cycle, you have a mature follicle now. This is when pregnancy can occur. Progesterone levels start to rise. Progesterone levels gradually rise during the luteal phase of the menstrual cycle, reaching a peak during the late luteal phase and then plummeting with the onset of menstruation. It's that plummet in progesterone if pregnancy has not occurred that causes menstruation to occur. So it's very complicated. There are nice figures that show this. These authors have broken it down into early, late follicular, periovulatory period, and then two periods during the luteal phase. So it's a very elegant study in that regard in which they were able to gather data.
3: All right. Thank you, Steve and Mary, for that nice overview and, and particularly a reminder of the physiology that's going on throughout the menstrual cycle. I think that's always helpful to, to, to be reminded of that. We're going to come back to that. So I think it's going to be helpful to do a few passes. So when we actually look at the okay. definitions that the authors use in their methodology, well, I'll, I'll, I'll go through those definitions again.
0: Endocrine News Podcasts are a free service of the Endocrine Society. To learn more or to become a member, visit the Society's website at www endocrine.org.